Well, here we are. We're at the last week, can you believe it, of this little series on coming to know your father. Uh, we're going to read a passage from God's word and then pray before we go into this week, week five. This is from 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice. Now some translations there might have the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit and we've seen and testify the Father has sent his Son as the Saviour of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. Now notice what he's done there very carefully is define what the love of God is. What he's basically said is you cannot know the love of God outside of the Son, Jesus, and you cannot know the love of God outside of the Son, Jesus, becoming the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in that, as we confess Jesus as the Son of God, we abide in God and he in us through the Spirit which he's given to us. Keep going. God is love and those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Now let me just ask you there, how many of you feel if Jesus were to come back, Don said in the discussion earlier, no one knows the hour, referring to Matthew 24. So he could come back in the next nanosecond. And if he does, how many of you feel that you would be very bold to stand in his presence and... We've got one person, two people. Yeah. Well, actually we should, everyone should have a hand up. That we might have boldness in the day of judgment. Why? Because as he is, so also are we in this world. What does that mean? As Jesus is, 
so are we in this world. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about judgment. So, let me ask you this question. Will Jesus ever come under the wrath and judgment of God the Father? As he is, so are you in this world. So, does that give you a sense of boldness? Can you stand up a bit now? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. We'll just pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for these words of your scripture. We thank you for the testimony they bear of your love and for the testimony they bring to us of Jesus Christ and his work. Grant to us ears to hear and spirits open to receive, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this week we're talking about this Uh, Some of you have seen that picture before. It's a remarkable underwater picture of an iceberg. And what you can see is that the amount under the water is about nine times the amount above the water. And why am I showing you that? Because there was a very famous and wonderful British theologian, he wasn't a Lutheran but we'll forgive him for his sins, uh, P.T. Forsyth who was writing in the late part of the 1800s, early part of the 1900s, all the way through World War I, some of the most trying conditions that Europe had entered ever. And he said at one point, the work of Christ on the cross is like an iceberg because nine-tenths of it is hidden from our view. So we see and very appropriate that we're talking about these things now as we come to Easter weekend, Maundy, Thursday, tomorrow, Good Friday and so forth. In those events and particularly through the words which Jesus uttered on the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Do you remember that's the first word? Woman, behold your son. To the thief, the second word, today you will be with me in paradise. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the way through to the final word, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Those actions of Easter week and those seven words, which would be wonderful to do a series on one day, Vaughan, if you're looking for something to preach on, those seven words give you a window into the cross. As Jesus in his true humanity went to a place that none of us have ever gone to, could ever go to or will ever be asked to go to. But even then, we'd be very, very wrong if we thought we, would, we understood it all. So, P.T. Forsyth said, it's like an iceberg. We see a tip of an enormous work on our behalf that smallest tip is enough to take our breath away 
who knows what the whole of the work meant for God. So this week we're going to talk about what it meant for God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to bring us the gift of sonship. Because if we think it was easy, if we think they could just snap their fingers and say, there you go, we've got it completely wrong. Now there are two main headings that we're going to look at this week. The nature of God's work on the cross and the second is like unto it, the nature of God's wrath and its propitiation. Now that's the word that I said you might find in your Bible translations, atoning sacrifice, propitiation. That's a word that has to do with the averting or the turning away of wrath. Now we need to spend a bit of time on the first one in order to get to the second one and the first one's a little bit technical but I'm going to try and make it easy to follow. If you look lost, I'll stop or you can ask me to stop. Now, you can recognise, I guess, what that is. It's an ancient problem. It's actually a picture of the lens of a lighthouse, yes? But I'm using it to illustrate an ancient problem which arose in the early history of the church when we were trying to debate the sorts of questions that we were just touching on in the conversation, the discussion point earlier about the nature of the humanity of Jesus, the nature of the Godhead in the humanity, the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Incarnation, all of those things which our forefathers have worked out and given to us as we understand them in the creeds and so forth. Now, one of the problems, and it may be interesting, perhaps inadvertently, Uh, you think this way. I remember when I did (coughs) early church history many years ago and we studied all of the major heresies that afflicted the early church and the problems that they had to work through and the doctrines that they had to rely on. At one point or another during that year I thought, oh my goodness, I've been a heretic five times over. Because you sort of just assume things and you don't subject them to the criticism of scripture and certainly to the witness of the history of the church. But an ancient problem was this and it arose particularly out of Greek philosophy where they had a problem with the material world being evil as we alluded to. Spirit was good, matter was evil. They got around this problem by saying, well, it's like you put a light in the middle of a triangle and each triangle is a different colour and as the light resolves or revolves it shines a different colour. So now it's red and now it's blue and now it's green and now it's red but the light inside always stays the same. You might think, oh, that's a good thing, (laughs) a good explanation of the Trinity. Uh, Well, we'd be wrong. That was a problem which was called modalism in the early church. It had a number of different forms but basically it said God is free to appear in this mode at this time 
and this mode at another time and this mode at another time and the mode that he appears in is entirely arbitrary except that it's helpful for us. So he may appear to us as the Father through one lens or he may appear to us in the Son as another lens or the Spirit or potentially there are other lenses that he could appear as and it doesn't really matter what he appears as because the light in the middle stays the same and the modes of his appearing, they change and so Jesus was just a mode of his appearing and God the Father is just a mode of his appearing and God the Holy Spirit is just a mode of his appearing. Now, that leads us to a lot of problems. If we adopt that view of God, it means there are no persons in the Trinity, no essential persons. There is just a light source appearing in various modes. And if there's no essential person, then there's no identification with us. When it says you are made in the image of God, which mode were you made in? Were were you made to reflect one mode or another mode? (laughs) Or were you made to reflect the Father in the Son by the Spirit? What does it mean to be in the image if God can just change his mode at any point? What does it mean, secondly, for the fixed relationship between the Father and the Son? I haven't put the Spirit there because we're talking about fatherhood primarily, but if there's no fixed persons in the Trinity, then there's no fixed relationship. That means the Father need not be the Father and the Son need not be the Son And if you are made in the image of the Son, then you need not have a father and you don't have a father. You're an orphan stuck out in the universe somewhere. But if there's no fixed fatherhood, then Jesus and all that he's taught and all his revelation, you might as well just say, well, I'll put that in the rag bag with everything else that every religious teacher's just taught and we'll just take your pick. Because if that fixedness of relationship is gone, Jesus hasn't brought a revelation of God from heaven, he's just brought his own opinions. And you might as well read someone else who's got other opinions and give them all equal weight and you decide what you want to believe simply because it appeals to your own tonsils or something. But thirdly, if there's no persons there is no moral focus. Now this, I don't want to get too technical but I think you can understand this very simply. Good and evil are not two forces in the universe. It's not as though there's this force called good and God's on that side along with the good angels and Jesus and good Christians And there's this force called evil and Satan's on that side along with the demons and people who don't go to church, evil people. 
And it's though good and evil are two equal and opposite principles. No, 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 no. God alone is good, says Jesus. Why do you call me good? God alone is good. God is not subject to a principle. He is goodness. Just as he is holiness and righteousness and truth. And then there's everything else. Put the thing slightly differently. Sometimes we think perhaps this way. Well, there's the unseen realm and in the unseen realm is God and angels and demons and the spirits of just men made perfect and all of those things in the unseen realm. And then there's the seen realm, there's the world and the creation. No, no, no. There is God and everything else. Because everything else, seen and unseen, is part of a created world. He is never part of a created world. The creator is not the creation. Is that okay? So when we're talking about good and evil, it's not an unseen force of good. The will of God is good. See, good and evil is a... Bring it down to your earthly experience day by day. Do you decide to do good? um, No, let's not get too philosophical about... I I took a cake into Kirsten's work today. Probably raised their cholesterol level, maybe increased their chance of diabetes. Perhaps it wasn't a good thing. But I reckon it was a good thing to take a cake into Kirsten's work and say, here you go, cheer your day up. You do something good, right? Or do you do something evil while they're all eating the cake, you go around the back and spike all their car tyres so they can't leave when they want to. Now, who did those things? It's not some impersonal force called good and an impersonal force called evil. It's actually the expression of your will, is it not? Good and evil are not forces... They are the expressions of what your will does. And in the ultimate sense, there is only one good will. God. Because since the fall, all human wills, certainly the satanic will and the demonic wills, their will is only to contradict and confound the will of God. And that's evil. Does that make sense? So if you're going to have a modalism with no persons, so you've got no expression of a personal will, then good and evil become meaningless entities. Some people believe in yin and yang, you know? These eternal principles of yin and yang and you have to keep them all in balance. Well, let me ask you a question is the principle of yin and yang a yin principle or a yang principle? You you can't... The way in which God orders his creation is that the goodness and holiness and righteousness and truth that might be reflected in the creation 
is a reflection of the will which created it. So when Jesus comes, the only thing he wants to do is do the will of his Father because he knows that's going to be good. He doesn't even have to work out, is this good or is this bad for me? He just says, Father, what's your will? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that a good prayer? Yeah, it's good. So why are we saying these things? Well, remember that little phrase that we used in the first week which says, in all of their actions, the divine persons work in concert. So, in the incarnation, the Father sends the Son, the Son comes willingly from the Father and the Spirit is the agent by which he's incarnated. Okay. So, in the cross, the Father sends his Son into the world to be the propitiation of our sins, as we've read in John. The Son willingly comes to be the Lamb of God to take away our sins and the Spirit comes upon him in his baptism and John the Baptist sees him and says, as the Spirit's there, behold the Lamb of God. The writer of the Hebrews says, he offered himself up to God through the eternal Spirit. So everything you see is the actual work of this triune Godhead. Now, That's the more technical stuff over. Uh, As you know, I lived with my late wife for a long time in Scotland. Uh, Scotland was affected by the Celtic Church through Columba and uh, many places you'll see crosses which are of this sort of design. This is not an exact one. It's quite different from uh, the normal Roman cross. What do you notice around the centre? Uh, circle and what does that circle represent? Uh, Well, in a philosophical sense but Trinity. It's the circle of the triune family. Almost as though the, this is speaking sort of in human terms, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit form a circle as they hold hands. That's how that later came to be called infinity. No beginning, no end the Alpha, the Omega. And you'll see in some of the Celtic knotwork there are sort of symbols of the Trinity. You can't depict the Trinity by anything but there are symbols that sort of say there is this threeness, three in oneness. You can see those. Now, what those old Celtic theologians were trying to show was that the work of the cross was a work of the whole Godhead. It was a work of God, God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit. It was a work sort of within their own triune life. Not something that happened out there where they watched from a distance. But it was a work which was done on our behalf. I want you to linger on that. You might not see the relevance of that at the moment. Uh, But when we see a man crucified, you say, where was God in that? And then you start to nudge the iceberg. 
because God's in that more than you'll ever begin to know. And that cross is in God more than you can begin to imagine. Because as the writer to the Revelation says, that Jesus was the Lamb of God sacrificed from before the foundation of the earth. That cross was in the heart and life of God ever before Jesus was crucified. That cross is God. That is the way God is. It's not something which God adopted to get us out of a scrape. Oh goodness, they sinned. I didn't see that coming. Oh goodness, the evil ones got them in his clutches. Oh goodness me, says God. They don't know that I'm their father anymore. Wrings his hands in heaven and says, what shall I do? I know, plan B, I'll send my son on the cross. No, no, no. The way that you see God revealed in the cross is the way God is. It's a work of God within the life of God which he conducts on our behalf. And it's very, very, what's happened? Personal. Next slide. It's a bit of a confronting picture, isn't it? I'll just stop here for a minute and ask you to look at that picture and ask if, like me, you see that picture and you had a reaction that made your heart just shrivel up inside. And perhaps it's because we've had a dad like that. Perhaps it's because we still think we've got a dad like that. Fear involves punishment. Sometimes we hear the parable of the prodigal son like this. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? Man had two sons. And the older one was the good son. And he looked after the father's farm and he always did the right thing and he always went to church and he always obeyed his dad. And the younger son, he was the wastrel. He told his dad to drop dead and he wanted his money and got his dad to give him his inheritance before the time. And he took the money and he went off and he blew it all on loose living and gambling and heaven knows what else and then he came back when he had been feeding the pigs at the depths of his degradation and he thinks well even my father's slaves have more than this so he turns himself home and he's thinking of the reception that he might get and he might have ringing in his ears the words of his mum You just wait till your dad catches up with you. And so step by step he comes back and then running the other way is the good elder brother. And he says, I'm so glad I got you before you got home. 
dad is as angry as a cut snake. He is still fuming. He's been trying to restructure the family business. The bank's on his back. Everything's gone to pot and it's all your fault and dad's not left you off the hook yet. So if you come back, you come back hanging your head between your tail. Don't put your head above the parapet. Sneak in around the back door. Hide out in the barn with the slaves. And I tell you what, if I get on his good side and if I put in a good word for you, can't guarantee but I, I might just be able to swing a deal and, and he might be willing to have you back under the main roof but <laughs> goodness, don't expect your inheritance and don't expect anything else but at least you could be safe. Now, I think lots of us think that's the prodigal son. Jesus is the good elder son. He's come. Dad's still very, very angry and it's going to be a very cold day and a very hot place before he's going to throw the door open for us. But if we tiptoe carefully around the edge, hold on to the elder brother's hand, don't get in God's sights because he's going to kill you as soon as look at you. Whatever you do, don't muck up again because, goodness, you've mucked up once. If you mucked up twice, you're going to be history. You're, you're, you're dead meat if you muck up again. And so you live in the father's house as a slave. And the constant dogging step is fear. And you find yourself not approaching your father with boldness in the day of judgment. And you find yourself living in the place that 1 John 4 says no. <laughs> fear involves punishment. And that's the hallmark of what you think God is like. And so very often when we think about God and his wrath and his judgement we think that Jesus has come to save us from God. And if it wasn't for Jesus we'd be in a really sticky situation but because of what Jesus has done God's almost inclined to let us in but Jesus, it's a close thing. Now, in Romans chapter 1, we read three times this verse, 24, 26 and 28. For this reason, God gave them over. For this reason, God gave them over. For this reason, God abandoned them or gave them over to their lusts, to their passions, to their foolishness, to their blindness, to their desire not to acknowledge him as God or give thanks to have other gods before him. God gave them over. The point of mentioning that is because this is in fact a description 
of what Paul uses, when Paul's speaking about the wrath of God, this is a description of what he means. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, sometimes we think that the wrath of God is sort of like the teacher wielding the cane at the front of the classroom. Uh, Those of us who are old enough to remember that. And there were certain things that got you four or five strokes with the cane, certain things that got you more, some things that got a thump on the desk next to you which made you glad you were wearing long pants. But there were certain things that were said and done where you think, ah, that's what I've done, now I'm going to get the punishment. So there's a separation between the event and the punishment. Now, what Paul's saying in Romans 1 is this. When we choose not to acknowledge him as God or give thanks and we tip over into that realm where we're dark and confused and all of our conscience is misaligned and we're worshipping the creature rather than the creator and all of our innermost being is sort of broken up within us and we're suffering shame and guilt and loss and perplexity, that experience of being there is the wrath of God. God's wrath isn't sinful. Thank God that he's wrathful but not like yours or mine. (laughs) Thank God that he loves, but not like yours and mine. So God's wrath is not sinful, but that experience of being in that place of sin, see, put the thing a little bit differently. When you're a little tacker and you did something wrong, What happened? Now, I'm not asking you about what happened when your dad got home. I mean, what happened to you? What did you feel? What what did you feel? Who, Who felt fear? Who felt shame? Who felt guilt? Who felt anxiety? Who felt confused and you didn't know which part of the woodshed to hide in? Well, in that experience you're under the wrath of that sin that you did wrong. Can you see that? You're actually experiencing the dynamic nature of that in your body, in your mind, in your conscience. And so God in his wrath says, that's what you want, you can have it. You want to become a spiritist and consult the demons? Well, I'll let you have those. They can visit you in seances and they'll shut you up in a prison. You want to become someone who's a constant cheat and a liar and a thief and a murderer? Well, you can do that and and you'll actually reap the consequences partly through the system that I put in place but more importantly through what happens to you as a person. So you're shut up, closed in. It's the sort of language that Paul uses in Romans where he says that he has 
shut us up, closed us in to sin so that we would find mercy. It's the same sort of language that the Pythagogos passage used. You're under guardians and custodians and disciplinarians. Yes? But notice the picture. It's not without hope. Somewhere there's a word. There's a gospel. Because your abandonment, your shutting up to that place is not the final, fixed, ultimate, total abandonment that it could be. You're in the place where the prodigal son was feeding the pigs but there's a memory of your father and the goodness and kindness of God starts to lead you to repentance and there's a spark of love in that person's eye and there's something in this person's heart which wants to do you good and then there's a word which someone gives to you and then you read a book that someone passes to you and you realise suddenly the There's a world beyond this place that you're imprisoned in. It's called the Gospel. Next slide. Now, you can tell what that's a picture of. It's a person who's been on a diet for too long. No? It's a person schematically showing their circulatory system. Yeah? Now, when that heart beats, everything moves at once, doesn't it? So, your heart beats here in your chest, but you can feel a pulse in your ankle if you know where to feel it. And you can feel another one in your neck and another one in your wrist and another one at your temple. And if you had five hands, you could feel all of those pulses at the same time and they would beat exactly at the same time that your heart beats. Is that true? You don't get five different heartbeats. You get one heartbeat and five pulses. And if there's a difference between those things, you need to go and see a doctor. Next slide, Vaughan. Now, that's a little picture of what happens in that place where we're given over to the sin which is our experience of God's wrath. Everything moves at once. It's not as though you can separate out then your sin from your guilt, from the powers of Satan from the shame that you feel, from the influence of the flesh, from what Jesus calls the world from which you've been saved. All of those things belong to the one system and as that sin fires its guilt, so the accuser comes in with his accusation, so the world is tempting you to a way out of it, so the flesh is tempting you to justify yourself and that all happens in a nanosecond, all at the same time. Does that all make sense to you? So let's try and bring these threads together. Go to the next one. In the Old Testament, when a person brought 
a lamb to be sacrificed, what did they have to do to it? Well, you can see the knife there at the front of the picture ready for sacrificing the lamb. But what's the person doing with the lamb now? Yeah? He's putting his hand on it. And what's that a symbol of? What's that a symbol of? He's saying, this lamb is now taking my sin and my failure and the transgressions of the law onto itself symbolically. So that as that person or as that lamb was sacrificed, it was as though the offerer was saying, this is me but it's not me. (laughs) The lamb is a substitute for me. Now, in this we're not talking about equivalent punishment. That lamb sort of identified or the man identified with the lamb and the lamb, poor thing, didn't have a choice in it but it was identified with the man. So it's not saying this is equivalent punishment like you smashed the window behind the bike sheds when you were throwing the cricket ball, that's worth five strokes of the cane. Here's a million units of sin, that deserves a million units of punishment. What's happening with this lamb, symbolically, is that that sin is actually on the lamb. And what it's experiencing is the consequence of that sin being on the lamb. Because you can think about the cross wrongly. You can think about the cross that says we have really stuffed up very, very badly and God is very, very angry and we have committed five billion units of sin so Jesus has to go onto the cross and he has to be whipped five billion equivalent times in order to balance the scales of justice. Jesus becomes God's whipping boy until God's arm is so tired he's given up. Oh, God save us from such a picture. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Read it together. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Isaiah 53, I'm not sure if we're reading that on Good Friday, Vaughan. Can't remember the readings. Isaiah 53 where he was uh, bore our transgressions and carried our iniquities and we esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. Romans 8 verse 3, what the law could not done, weak was was through the flesh, God did sending his son in in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh of his son. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, talks about having been crucified with Christ and so forth. That should be Colossians 3, 3, I think, I'm not sure. But the point is this, that when Jesus went to the cross, he was not carrying an equivalent amount of punishment that your sins deserve because you couldn't separate the sin from its judgment. can't separate the sin from its punishment. The punishment's in the sin. The wrath is in the sin. The judgment's in the wrongdoing. So if he's to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world, what does he have to experience? He has to experience the sin of the world. Now, you and I can't understand this. Go back to that little illustration of you when you were five year old or whatever it was and you did something wrong and you're terrified and you're trying to hide and you're anxious and you're fearful and you're full of shame and you've got guilt and that trying to handle that one sin almost unhinges you. But what is it for this man to now be made the sin of the world? For him, not just to sort of bear it in a theological sense, but to actually experience your sin. There are things that you've done that you've never told anyone. Is that true? Christ experienced the shame and the hiddenness of it. Christ carried the darkness of it. There are things that this universe has done to one another in the name of God which actually is horrendously wicked. We've stoned one another to death in the name of God. We've burnt people in ovens in the name of God. And Jesus Christ in his body entered into every last experience of that sin as he was the Lamb of God, not in a symbolic sense, but the whole experience of the sin of the whole world is what he entered into. You can't believe the shame of it and the pain and the accusation as the evil one came at him and the haunting jackals of demonic forces that gathered round him and the sense of utter abandonment and lostness. And so he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that point, he was at a place where you can never go. Because no matter what sin you've committed, you can never bear the sins of the world. You can't be the Lamb of God. And because he was at that place, you now never have to go there. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that will separate you from the love of God. There's no abandonment. God's not abandoning you. Even in the worst of your suffering, he's closer than your next breath. God has not ever lost one of his children. 
the only child who went to the outer darkness was his son. Now, if you've got a modalist God, (laughs) easy. Because there's no persons. But if you've got a Christian God, what did it mean for the son to lose all contact with the father in the outer darkness as he was made sin? And what did it mean for the father to have to abandon his son up And what did it mean for the Spirit, who's the Spirit of the Father and the Son, to actually at that point, so to speak, be the Spirit which enables their separation? Do you think there were tears in heaven? Do you think the Father's heart was torn from his chest? Do you think the spirit was sighing and groaning too deep to utter? So the cross is an event within God for your benefit. So that he went to the outer darkness and you may be brought to the light. He was abandoned so that you are not forsaken. He was cut off so that you can be brought in. He was killed so that you would have the gift of eternal life. So the father who's done this is not like any of our earthly fathers. Those of us who are children, those of us here who have children, hands up. Would you give up your child for anybody in the world? Well, you certainly wouldn't give them up for your enemy, would you? That's what God does. And as C.H. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, forgive him his sins, said, when you see this, does not the question arise in your hearts? Does not the Father love me more than he loves his own son? Amazing grace. So what happened on that cross? At the same time you have to say two things. On the one hand you have to say Christ died for me. It's a true Christian statement. Christ died for me. But on the other hand you have to say this. I died with Christ. He took me with him on that cross. He identified with everything in my heart and my life 
He swept through the deepest recesses of my secret heart. He took all of the skeletons out of my cupboard. He took all of the shame and the guilt and the fear that has always attended the steps of our sin. He took that with him. So when those nails went through him, I was there. I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul. He died for me, yes. But even more, I died with him. And even more, I've been buried with him and I've been raised with him and I'm now seated with him in the heavenly places and I now am a co-heir with Christ and I'm a member of God's own household and I belong to a kingdom of priests and I have a family which no man can number from all people and tribe and tongue and they were all in that cross as Jesus took them there and they all went down into his grave as he took them there and he's all taken them up to heaven and he's going to have you and all of that family complete at the Father's throne and as the writer to the Hebrew says, he's going to stand there with this great multitude and you and me all hanging on to his coattails and he'll say, Oh, Father, behold me and the children you've given me. Pretty good picture, isn't it? So, what does that mean? There is no fear in love. For perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So, come back to where we started tonight. Do you feel like you would stand boldly before the presence of God? You bet. And none of it would have anything to do with what you've done. But if you don't, you're saying to Jesus, your work's not good enough. There's some skeleton in the cupboard left over. I don't know if it's a true story but it's a great story so I'll tell it because it could be true. Once upon a time, (laughs) is the way all fairy tales start, there was a man who was having a Bible study group in his house and uh, as people were coming to the door he made sure that there were some people in the lounge room ready for the Bible study group and others he was meeting separately by the door and to each one he came He shook their hands and looked at them very meaningfully in the eye and he said, I know the truth about you. Now, what would that do to you? Can you imagine the sort of conversation that was going on in the lounge room? (laughs) Nice day, (laughs) good weather. Cakes are nice, aren't they? (laughs) Well, she makes a good cup of coffee. Small talk, small talk, small talk. Keep the skeletons tucked in the cupboard. guy comes into the room and he says, I know the truth about you and now I'm going to tell it. The truth is, you are all forgiven. The truth is, there is no condemnation. The truth is, there are no skeletons in your cupboard anymore. 
did Jesus on that cross do a work that he left half finished? So, beloved, you can't separate your adoption as sons from the gift of forgiveness. But if you're adopted, you have to be forgiven. And if you're forgiven, you have to be adopted. But you can't be half adopted any more than you can be half forgiven. And so, what does that mean for Easter time? What landscape are you looking out at? I'll just ask you tonight, what landscape do you have in your mind's eye? Do you look back over your life and you see it's all just burnt out ruins and smoking heap of ash and rubbish? Or do you look at it and there's actually a garden and a new creation? Well, that's the way it is because you've died with Christ, you've been buried with Christ, you've been raised with Christ and you walk out in newness of life and Easter is just telling you that all over again. And that newness of life means that you as a son never again need to fear what God's going to think of you. Martin Luther in his 1535 Galatians commentary says something like this. What a joy and release to your conscience when you know for a certainty that God is not now nor ever will be wrathful with you for the sake of Jesus Christ. Makes a difference to the way you face everything, doesn't it? Even those unpleasant things like illness and our final death. Those things are not there because God's trying to get even with us. They're there to usher us into a new experience of sonship. So, I think we've come to the end of this series and we've just begun really, haven't we? Now you feel like you can start. But we're going to pray and then as has been our habit, We'll uh, just move away quietly when we feel we're ready. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this wonderful word of the cross which was planned before time. We thank you, Father, for the fact that you've not left us as orphans, but you've come to us. We thank you, our Father, for the fact that this dear man, Jesus Christ, who stood up for us, has done so entirely as one with you, Father, because you've stood up for us in him and you, together with the Holy Spirit, have embraced us in the circle of that cross. And we pray tonight, Father, very simply that it will ring in our ears and that the word that we would carry in our hearts into this Easter season is, it is finished. It is. May it be so. Amen.